1: Welcome to the Andor podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David.
2: I am John, And this is our podcast for the Star Wars Disney Plus show, Andor, season one, episode nine, Nobody's Listening.
1: <laughs> God, that's the not something a podcaster
2: wants to hear <laughs> as a title. I know, right? I was just thinking that. In this episode, we'll be discussing our overall thoughts on the episode before moving into a scene-by-scene breakdown followed by listener feedback and a short lore segment. For this episode, David is going to provide us with some background on the Saw Gerrera character, and we've put that at the end of the episode for those who might want to avoid spoilers.
1: Before we get started, a quick reminder that you can send feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those questions in the next episode. We're covering Andor in full for the rest of the season, and if you want to talk Star Wars with us sooner, join us on the Bald Move Discord server, link in the description below, and at baldmove.com.
2: If you're enjoying our coverage of Andor or any of the other shows we're covering and you'd like to support us directly, head over to patreon.com Lorehounds and subscribe today for early and ad-free access to every episode. Of course, you can always find all of our ad-supported episodes on our public feed. Just search for the Lorehounds in your podcast app of choice.
1: Another quick ask, please take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a review, if you feel so moved. Ratings and reviews help other people find the podcast, which helps us make more podcasts.
2: We've just started a full coverage of The White Lotus over on HBO, and the new episode in a new series called Silmarillion Stories will drop later this month, just in time for the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S. And we're still waiting for a release date for The Wheel of Time. Once we know what the release date is, we'll update everyone on our full coverage plans for Season 2.
1: Okay, John, with uh, all that out of the way, uh let's get into our overall thoughts on episode 9. What did you think? You know,
2: I saw a Reddit post. Uh-huh.
1: Oh, you went there?
2: That really encapsulated. I I go to Reddit all the time, too much, really.
1: Really? Wow.
2: And so I saw this Reddit post that encapsulated sort of how I felt about it, which are you is are you sure this is a Disney show? <laughs> I can't yes. believe Disney made this. Um, we, you know, everybody has been worried about between Star Wars and Marvel. Is Disney going to sort of neuter these shows and make them so that we can never have any adult content in them? And this was basically like half horror movie.
1: Yeah, it was very intense, wasn't it?
2: It was. And just everything from the torturer who's gleeful to Andy Circus breaking to the the uncertainty of what's happening in this isolated prison was just absolutely terrifying.
1: I hadn't thought about it in a ter- in the in a in a way of terrifying. I mean there were terror terrifying moments, but I guess I don't know. I'm I'm vibing on the show in a, in a very different way though too. So but now that you say that I can I can see especially the, the look on Andor's face or, uh, as he's going through the episode, there's just like this below-the-surface, like, intensity and panic that can only represent the, the sheer terror that the prisoners are feeling on Narkina 5.
2: Yeah, but you could see the gears turning again and how he's sort of oh, yes. uh, a little bit more confident in his plan to escape now.
1: Yeah, totally. So,
2: David, what did you think about this episode?
1: Well, John, I've got six pages of handwritten notes, so I have a lot of thoughts about this oh, episode. Oh, my gosh. I know. Um I am just digging the show on kind of a next level. Like I'm really nerding out on on what they're doing here. Everything from the writing to the production design to the acting. I mean, we've just been saying this over and over again in 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 every podcast is just like just gushing about the show, you know, to playing with tropes like the rich girl runaway trope, uh, to um just even how they design the machines that Cassian and the rest of the prisoners in Arkina Five are are working on, like the practical sets, just absolutely incredible. So that said, this in this you know this middle part of the um, arc, this three story arc, obviously with you know it being a prison break story, the way that they ratchet the tension and the way that they move the plot forward is just so deftly done. Like, really, this is peak television, in my opinion. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just on the edge of my seat waiting for next Wednesday, right? Like, I just can't wait. That's how I am with the show, It's just like, give me the next one.
2: Yep. We are cursed not to binge it.
1: Yeah, and I'm really excited for when <laughs> the season is over, because you know I'm going to binge it. I'm going to binge it all the way through, and then I'm going to watch Rogue One right after.
2: And then I'm going to make my friends binge it. And then I'm going to tell the world to binge (laughs) it. I'm going to be on Reddit
1: even more. (laughs) I mean, even after we finish recording this, my spouse and I are going to sit down and watch it because she hasn't seen it yet. So (laughs) I'm going to watch it for the third time, I think, in as many days.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, I'm sure you'll enjoy it.
1: Yeah. If I had less work to to do in my real life, I would have uh, probably watched it a fourth time.
2: I hear you. Well, I'm excited to hear your thoughts tonight. I think it's going to be a fun one.
1: Yeah. All right, John. Well, let's quit uh, mucking about and let's get right into the scene breakdown, shall we?
2: All right, I'm into it. All right. First off, we're on Ferrex again, and Dedra is questioning Bix right where we left off last episode. David, what'd you think of this
1: scene? Oh my lord! This and this was a really long scene. This is one of the longer scenes in the out of the whole episode. Yeah. And um, the actress. Denise Gao, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name.
2: Who played Yennefer in The Witcher 3 video game, by the way, if you're a fan of that. Uh, Big, big character. So if you recognize her voice, that's Yennefer.
1: Wow. Well, I I looked her up on IMDb quickly, and I didn't see any real notable credits, you know, nothing that, you know, big that was standing out. And it looks like she's got a lot of stage, um, a bunch of, you know, a handful of films, some TV, and, and like you said, a lot of voiceover in, uh, in video game stuff. But her performance in this was chilling. I was so scared for Bix. And when they finally <laughs> reveal how, uh, was it Dr. Gorst is going to torture her like
2: oh no, dr gorse is the worst
1: whoa like ingenious really great star warsian sort of thing right or some sci-fi thing no we're not going to you know get the you know uh, dental implements or you know box of rusty tools out like this is something so interesting and unique that I was just um, amazed. I was so pleased. I mean, I wasn't pleased for Bix, but I was really pleased at the at the writing and the scene construction.
2: I'm pleased that they were able to do something creative with torture that was not force lightning and force choke, yeah. et cetera.
1: That's a good point.
2: So it's really great to see this show branching out into different arms of the Empire, because I think that's something that was often overlooked in the movies is. It's not just the people with lightsabers and with force sensitive abilities that are doing the bad deeds and keeping the empire going. It's the everyday people. It's the banality of evil, like we've talked about.
1: Yeah, exactly. Quick tangent, uh, tangential conversation. I was thinking about this the other day. So they really are creating a mundane world for us, right? You know, yeah, ballgame blasters and spaceships and you know, all that kind of stuff, and, and uh, a, a wide variety of, of different species throughout the galaxy. But all of these people are just people, right? They're just doing people stuff. Yeah. So in this world where it's just like da 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 da, what if a Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker were to show up and start using the Force like that? Like if I showed up at your house tomorrow and started using the Force, or went out in the street and my neighbors, you know, and I started using the Force, people would lose their damn minds. Yeah. Like it would be terrifying. It would be unbelievable. And I love the fact that in this Star Wars world, I'm I'm kind of there's a little juice that I'm getting where, well, what if a Force user shows up in a storyline here somewhere, you know, and and I I kind of trust that Gilroy, and the writing team would play it well, but like it would be a shocking moment. So I think for when we compare, Andor to the rest of the Star Wars universe, 99.999% of the you know the species that are populating this galaxy. They've never seen the Force. They've never experienced the Force. Never seen, but that's what our bread and butter has been, right, with with the Skywalker saga.
2: Yeah, and I think that we get pretty accustomed to it and take it for granted since the first thing that we do in the Star Wars trilogy is, in the original trilogy, is have Luke be introduced to lightsabers and the Force. And that's like our first entry into the politics of this world. Exactly. So it's fascinating to see this show take the same world and completely avoid what has been the calling card forever. Um, I hope that they finish out the season with no lightsabers, with no, yeah. um, no with no obvious use of the Force, at least.
1: I'm agreeing with you there, yeah.
2: Yeah, and then hopefully maybe in season two, we can see an interesting way of them using it.
1: I would be totally down for that. Like some little appearance at the end. Well, even at the end of Rogue One, they did that, right, where Vader shows up. And the, uh, spoilers, <laughs> when he's going through the ship, an absolutely wrecking shop. And the guys on that ship that were getting chased down by him were just terrified. They were like, holy hell, what is this thing that we are fighting? This is, I'm, you know, it was the the sheer terror and the panic on on their part as they were trying to get away, which that's what you would experience if like some guy got on the bus and started, you know, force choking, uh, you know, people as they were walking down the the corridor of the bus.
2: On the same note, you have Bix who just saw Pac beaten up, basically. He looked like like he had been traditionally tortured. Yes. And she probably thinks, well, you know what? Sure, that probably hurt a lot, but I can take it. Like I, I can yes. still yeah. I, I can make myself get through this by, you know, dissociating or whatever I need to do.
1: Right. I, I've grown up on Ferrix, on this tough planet where life is pretty hard. I'm I'm a tough chick. I can handle this.
2: Yeah, and then they say, "Okay, but we got you the new MetaQuest Premium, and you're going to be going into a VR horror game, and it's going to be real, and you're going to experience some of the biggest horrors the Empire has ever uh, created. Something that has made Imperial soldiers huddle into a corner, and that is something that can break her. and And I like that it didn't just have Bix resist it anyway." It, it basically said, like, okay, nobody's going to resist this torture, and then they don't. Right. This show has had a lot of opportunities to take cheap routes and predictable routes, and it has not. For example, having um, Karn rejoin Dedra. Yeah. That would have been the traditional TV writer way to go.
1: And 100%. in this show,
2: they're, they're turning him into, into a stalker which is something that I did not expect at first. Right. And now, but but at the same time, now that it's happening, I see how we got here. Uh-huh. And that's just so cool to me. And at the same time, you see how, like, Bix is, is making herself ready for torture, and she can't handle that. And the show told me that she can't handle it, and it's following through. And I'm really loving the way that the show is challenging um, my expectations.
1: Absolutely. I totally agree on there. They, there's so many places, like you said, where they could take the cheap way out, and they don't. And that is just, that's what's setting the show apart in my mind, and spoiling me uh, for other shows now. I'm going to have a hard time following up on what to watch next after this. Because it is, it's very smart, and it goes back to that thing of, you know, are the characters acting within their core motivations, or are they acting to move the plot forward? And in this show, the characters are moving forward in the way, you know, that that character would, and that is producing brilliant plot results. Brilliant results.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, the, the line, you know, you're in my net, Bix, the very worst thing you can do right now is bore me. Oh my,
2: <laughs> oh, like... Yeah, that was really scary. That blew my mind. And the, and the pressure behind her lips when she goes bore. Yes. The worst thing you can do is bore me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I really love, too, in this scene that we've been getting to know Deidre for a while now, right? And we've seen her operate internally in the ISB and and with some other things. But here, we're really, she's really telling us who she is and, and how she operates. And I don't have the exact quote, but it's, you know, something to the effect of, like, Oh, you know, other ISB officers would have just, like, you know, just grabbed everybody off the street, you know, tortured and beat them and, and you know, made them sign confessions just like they had um, Karn sign the report that he didn't see. And then we would have called it good and, and people would have been terrorized and we would have sort of, you know, just sanitized the whole area of any, you know, potential resistance. But I'm not like that. I am a person who is thoughtful, and taking my time, and I'm really going to find out the real truth. And, you know, right now, Bix, you've got two ways you can, we can do this. We can do this the simple way or the hard way, you know, sort of to be a cliche. But the way that she explains to Bix who she is as a character, and the way that the exposition that is done, not only about, you know, Dr. Gorst and the, and the torture method, But Deirdre giving us all of the information that she knows to be true, brilliant use of setting up a a narrative structure for the characters to give us exposition so we are fully in the picture and we're totally, you know, understanding what's going on, but not without being pandered to. By some dialogue that sounds like the writer is talking to us as opposed to character talking to us right
2: just brilliant you know it's a pleasure to watch Dedra be competent in a bubble when she's just with the ISB yeah she and the only people she's screwing over are other people who we shouldn't be rooting for, and then we can root for her in that vacuum right but as soon as you take her and you put her on a planet with people we care about, oh God, get out of the way of Dedra
0: oh.
1: Right. And then they flip it back later when, she, when Karn encounters her, where we feel for her again. So, this is just some really next level chess that they're playing with us with her character, rooting for her, not rooting for her. Like, I love the cat and mouse aspect of her in her pursuit of Cassian and Axis. And so, I'm like rooting for her to like, be successful in that mission and to best all of the other ISB officers, you know, uh, in, in her department. But, like, when she's got Bix in the chair, like, no! You go, no, not like
2: that. Not like that.
1: No. It was terrifying.
2: Yeah. So that's the fascinating thing about this show, though, is that you can root for someone on a personal level and then realize that they are blatantly evil and doing awful, indefensible things. Right. And you see how fascism and this, this way that the Empire runs is sort of corrupting people's souls and making them into these monsters. And using right. their talents, where Dedra could have been a hero oh. in another life, using these talents for such evil means, and and it's really tragic. Um, not that Dedra is not responsible for her actions. I mean, she's completely culpable. She understands what she's doing to Bix, but I think it's really interesting to see that sort of delicate balance. And the, the same way that you see somebody like Kino later is almost the epitome of a morally great character. Oh my god! Right. Uh, I, I can't wait to talk about that with you.
1: Yes. A couple of last thoughts on this scene. um, Especially on the rewatch, I picked up how and when they used music, and there's a a part of the scene where the violins start to kick in, and it is. Like you said, it's a horror show, right? It's, it's, It's something that they would do in a horror movie, and it was just so subtle and brought in just at the right moment to amp up that emotional tension that um, I was, like, I had chills. And then, you know, then they put the helmet on, or the the headset on, and then they go in close on on Bix's eyes. I mean, brilliant, brilliant storytelling.
2: There was also this thing that they did in the sequel trilogy that people actually appreciated, which was when they got to big explosions, and we keep upping the explosion level of the Death Star, and then the the rebuilt Death Star, etc., and you just couldn't go bigger. What they did was, in that huge explosion in the sequel trilogy, it's a silent explosion. And that, mm. that vacuum was louder yes. than any sound they could have done. In the same way that not showing what Bix was hearing was worse than any sound we could have heard. Maybe not worse. But you get the point. Is It portrays something that I don't think they would have been able to effectively recreate for us.
1: No, and I think all of us would have been like, oh, that wasn't so terrible. Or like, we would have all been <laughs> instantly judging the sound effect quality in that. Right. And instead, we're left to be with Bix eye to eye with her. And then when she screams, like, our, our own imagination is going to be much worse than anything that they could give us on screen.
2: Well, it's the same reason that Jaws is a better movie with less of the shark.
1: Yes, absolutely. Where we're now in an era of, of like, we get the monster earlier on and we get more of it as opposed to, uh, yeah, Alien was the same way, right? We only saw flashes of the monster every once in a while.
2: Yeah. Now, David, I thought of you as I watched this episode because I finally noticed the transition. <laughs> Wait, you
1: want to torture me? <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> no, I finally
2: noticed a transition. Mm. Uh, the, yes. the transition between this scene and the next was wonderful with Bix screaming with the machine. And then Cassian, yes. uh, Cassian's machine on Narkina 5 showing up with the drill.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like, the, ten, the, the way that they can, they can push emotional energy from one scene into the next using a transition is uh, just such a wonderful technique.
2: Yeah. Yeah, really excellent transition. So, speaking of Narkina 5, that's where we're at next. Speaking of. Uh, Cassian's team okay. is trying to win the day. We've got... Old man, Olaf, is that his name? Olaf, yep. Olaf is really trying to keep up and starting to struggle. Uh, what, how did you feel about this scene, David?
1: I, I love the fact that when we do come into this scene, we're coming in at a little bit of a steeper angle on the table. So we see more of the work table that they're they're um, using. Uh-huh. And um, we see them in a little bit more dynamic flow throughout the whole episode You know, on the factory floor. The fact that, you know, I don't know if all seven tables in this room are all actual working tables, but, you know, I mean, you can, you can get away with it with just one table. But they built this table to be operational. They had somebody come in who is conversant in how factories like this work and how you would set something up like this. Brilliant detail. And it's not just you know, the actors going through the motions with some styrofoam props. Yeah. You know, they're actually having to fit a wrench thing over a, you know, a coupling thing. They're actually having to twist and lift and turn physical objects. You know, and I don't know how, you know, if they're just pure foam or, or you know, what they're built out of or wood or whatever it is. But it has physicality to it. It's not like some fake boulder in an original episode of Star <laughs> Trek, you know, where they're, they're throwing it around. You know, there, there's actually something involved here. And I love that they went to that degree of practical effects for a television show. I know. This is not a blockbuster movie. This is a TV show. And they went to that length.
2: I mean, the level of quality we've received this year in TV is unparalleled.
1: Yeah. So I love the fact that we're starting to see that Cassian has the game sussed out, right? Like, at this stage, we don't yet, they, they don't yet give us that he's, like, working on a plan, but that he's just got the game sussed out. Yeah. And that, you know, he, he uh, uh, when he does ask Kino about, you know, the other table getting a new man sent down, that's our first inkling that, wait a minute, Cassian's... Why is he asking about a meta question here? Hmm. You know, yeah, we get that he like wants, is it flavor or taste? Or is it, is there, is there two different prizes to win there? I was confused about that.
2: I think it's the same thing, right? I mean, it's just some kind of seasoning in the food.
1: Anyway, he's got, you know, so we get that he's a smart guy and he's going to have the game sussed out, right? And he's going to be, he doesn't want to get shocked again. So he's going to keep his team... On the level, right, you know, above you know above getting shocked, but then, when he asks Kino about the new man coming down, like that's that first twinge of like, oh, wait a minute, Cassian's up to something, and he's up to something bigger than just winning the game
2: yeah, um,
1: Cassian
2: is a much different person this scene, this episode than he was last episode. Last episode, his eyes were active, but no other part of him was active. He could barely speak. He was in shock. He was yeah. absorbing his surroundings. Yeah. He was wondering if people could, if people were listening to him, which we find out in the title of the episode. Nobody's listening. Um, and he was wondering who he could trust among the prisoners, I think. And especially after reading Kino, he probably thought, I can't trust anybody. Everybody here has their head down, and they're just trying to not get shocked and survive until they're released. So I think Cassian was pretty resigned. And I said last episode, and I I think we had a disagreement on this, which was I think that seeing the people signing lit Cassian up more than anything else he saw.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're going to see that come into play, aren't we?
2: Yeah. And so I I feel vindicated on that statement because I do think that. that, Yeah, all right, all um, right. I do think that that really awakened something in him and made him feel like it was possible to rally these people. Like, they still had some kind of fire inside them.
1: Interesting, interesting. I like it. Yeah, like, there was, it gave him some hope.
2: Right, exactly. Because I think that he knew that, like, this is such a big prison, I will never get out of here if I don't have help. Right. So, if if everyone's defeated the same way Kino is, Kino says, I have this many days lost on my sentence, you're not going to fuck this up for me. Right. And if everything is uh, as every if everyone is as defeated as Kino, then he's doomed and he's in there for six years. And as we learned this episode, that's really forever. So right. he, I think that he was just really resigned until he saw that other people were starting to take things seriously too.
1: Right. That's a good point. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I missed that. Okay, I'm in. Um, do I owe you some internet points? Uh you put it on put it on the tab. I'm sure <laughs> I'll put it on something. the credit. <laughs> The look that Kino gives Cassian, though, when, when he's walking away, like, he's just like, knock it off with that shit. I was really surprised because Kino's, you know, he's got a big bark, right? Yeah. But, like, that he didn't just come over and knock. He loves to beat up on Melchi, but he never <laughs> has once. He, <laughs> poor Melchi has taken so many punches from Kino. It's ridiculous.
2: You're all my children, except you, Melchi,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm just gonna beat on you, um but that that he didn't knock Cassian down. he just shot him a dirty look, like that was like that was our first little inkling, like, okay, wait a minute, something di- when, something has changed here, something fundamental has changed here,
2: so I think that this episode we saw that Kino is not the villain that we thought he was last episode, mm-hmm, yeah, I think that Kino is just somebody who thinks that if he plays by the rules, if he puts his head down. He'll get off early on parole or something like that. Like, he is not going anywhere except by the correct channels as he sees them. And he feels that if he does a good job here, then more people will stay alive. I do think he actually cares for these people and thinks that he's doing the right thing by them by keeping them in line. Like he says to Cassian later, get those thoughts out of your head if you want to stay alive. So I don't think that he was having any malicious intent in episode one when he's putting, when he's laying down the law with Cassian.
1: Yeah, I agree. And we definitely see his care for his fellow inmates come up later in the episode. And yeah, both in conversation and in in deed. So uh, I think you're right. Like he's, I was expecting just sort of a a kind of a regular old, you know, uh, prison gang boss, you know, uh, uh, I forget what they they have particular titles. But, you know, he was just going to be, you know, kind of a stereotypical character. And yet they've given him so much more depth. And that has made... That's what made this episode all the more exciting at the end, like, you know, that fist pump at the end of the episode, you're just like, yes!
2: You get goosebumps when he says, never more than 12.
1: Yeah, like, I jumped out, like, I was just, like, all over the place. But that's because they set him up so well. They set him up as this very one-dimensional paper tiger kind of thing, but no, he's really got depth, he's got real authenticity, there's something more behind his bark. And so when he does crack, it just gives us that much more uh, emotional release.
2: Yeah, and we've talked about Cassian as sort of a morally gray character in Star Wars, but I think that Kino is even more so. I think that yeah. he's actually really peak gray character right. um, in Star Wars that I, I don't think we've seen on this level before. Very cool. All right, John, what's next? Next up, we're back with Dr. Gorst, who is <laughs> smiling and gleefully preparing to question Bix using a unique method.
1: The, he's so nerdy and so just kind of, you know, you know n- nerdy. <laughs> like, he seems like harmless.
2: And he's delighting in his work.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: You know, when you have a torturer who is very dark and seems to regret what they're doing, you think maybe they've taken off a few shades of pain here. Maybe mm. they tempered it a little bit. This guy has no such inhibitions. Done. This guy is ready to just do whatever he needs to do to get the results for Dedra.
1: He's like one of the um, uh, scientists out of The Expanse. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That Spoilers. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. But he just has no, whatever part of his brain would normally find empathy or sympathy with another being. It, it that just doesn't that machinery just doesn't operate.
2: Yeah, very scary. his His demeanor made it all the more scarier.
1: and his delivery of the exposition of the dysonites and and what happened with that was so so that's both exposition and a dramatic setup or what they're going to do to Bix. So he's telling Bix exactly what he needs to do to terrify her, and at the same time, explain to us what we need to know. It was just so well encapsulated. The story was compelling. His delivery was compelling. It was terrifying.
2: Yeah. And also telling us exactly what we need to know about him. Yes. Very, very scary.
1: I wonder if we're going to see him again or not. I mean, we certainly hear mention of him, but like, it'll be interesting if they bring that back again.
2: They're sending him around town. He's going on a galaxy
1: tour. <laughs> right, exactly. And then when uh, Dedra comes in right at the end there, so silently and so unexpectedly, she's just there like a ghost. And she's just like, yeah, you want to make sure that you can communicate to us because you don't want to have repeat uh, sessions with this thing. Like, and she was sounding so sympathetic, like, you know don't go for round two, my dear, because it's not going to be good. Um, You know, uh, it it was just so, like, you know, your gal pal saying, like, you know, hey, you know, like, fuck up, you know, tomorrow will be a a better day or something. And it was like, no, 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 this is sinister as hell.
2: Yeah, and you also have, outside, they're talking about Pac, and, uh, oh, can I hang him? What's Whatever's left of him? Yes. Yeah, sure, I don't care. First of all, completely dismissive of this guy's life, like, who cares? Um, as far as Zedra's concerned. And then what's left of Pack, like this, this very clearly does destroy a person's being.
1: Right. I think it was in this scene too, did you catch that? There's a nice little callback to Star Wars where um, when the door closes and the officer walks around the corner, that's a very, there's a very Star Wars scene when they're torturing Leia, very similar to that.
2: Hmm, I did not catch that. So Yeah. Good callback. Okay, next up, Cassian is messing with a pipe and further plotting his escape.
1: So another scene transition here. So we go from Bix in the in the door closing down to the guys. So you know that when they when they're doing the finishing touch on whatever thing it is that they're building, they bring that big center drill down and drill down on it. Yeah. Perfect visual language again here. We're drilling down on Bix and we're drilling down on Ferrex. Remember, they were talking about the drill down, you know, with uh, with uh, Wolf Ullarin. So it was just a really nice visual metaphor uh, and scene transition of them opening the, this next factory floor scene with that drill, you know, you know, running away and you know, running and sparking and and everybody sort of holding on to it.
2: Yeah, and. It's really cool to see Cassian plotting. I like, the, I like how, as we go on, the whole on-program is getting sloppier, because uh-huh. I think that in the first episode with this prison, you saw every single person who'd been there a while very quick to get in line and put their hands behind their back. And here, you see a lot more shuffling of feet. You see a lot more like turning around, like Cassian was, and getting yelled at for it. Um, And you don't even see the guards really getting mad about it. Right. uh, Other than, you know, telling uh, Kino and Cassian to get lost at that one point. But other than that, the guards aren't even noticing. And I think that they're starting to really lose control of this prison.
1: Right, right. What did you, uh, did you, did you find it, uh, were you shocked a little bit when Cassian went into the uh, water closet to uh, start sawing on that thing? 'Cause that's like our this is our first real moment of like, uh oh, you know, Cassian's up to something.
2: No, I could tell right away, I think, that okay. he was ready to start breaking out. Uh, right. I, I enjoyed that he was starting to do it because, you know, another show might have dragged this out a little longer, but I like that this is a three episode arc of him being in prison and getting out.
1: Right. And it wasn't until he leaves and comes back out on the floor that uh, when he talks to the other prisoner. Like, whoa, wait a minute, they're planning something. Like, he's got these guys, like, there is so much more going on here than, than. this is the first time that they're letting us know to the extent right. that, that Cassian has got stuff wired up.
2: Right. In the past, he says, see, I told you, nothing moving is electrified.
1: Yes. So they've had this conversation before.
2: Right. Nobody's listening.
1: Nobody's listening. <laughs> um, what do you, so- I, I was wondering what you th- might have thought of what, he, what it is that he was trying to cut. It looks like some sort of pipe or something.
2: Hmm. What is he trying to cut? I couldn't tell you. Maybe it's the kind of metal that's like not electrifiable like the guards are wearing. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe they're trying to make like horseshoes for themselves.
1: Or yeah, maybe something that it's going to cause a diversion or disable a piece of machinery or something like that. I guess we'll just have to wait and see.
2: Oh, yeah, that could be. Like, it's yeah. going to, maybe it's something where they can force the lift to come down.
1: Right, right.
2: That's a good call.
1: I thought it is, again, another visual metaphor. The way that he's, like, trying to, to cut that piece of metal reminds me a lot of how he's working Kino, too. He's, like, slowly, uh, you know, and eventually I'm going to get through, you know, and I just got to get to that first break point. But I'm just going to keep working on this thing slowly, slowly.
2: That's a good way to look at that. I hadn't thought of that little metaphor.
1: Well, that's what I'm here for.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. Is that on your six <laughs> pages of notes?
1: It is. It's right here on my six pages of notes. And uh, yeah, on my, my, that was my second watch. Uh, but I was watching it very scene by scene too. I was like <laughs> uh, pausing and writing and pausing and writing.
2: Excellent. Well, we'll get back to your six pages of notes right after this break. And we're back. So next up, we have a montage scene, some interlacing going on, uh, where Dedra is questioning Bix, Olaf is acting strange in the prison, Dedra leaves Bix, and finally Mon Mothma makes a speech and gets news of her cousin.
1: It'd be interesting, you know, I'm not a a medical expert, but it'd be interesting to see, knowing what we know happens to Olaf, if that behavior, I mean, I would assume That the writers would have worked that out, like how Olaf is acting, is uh, consistent with uh, medically what happens to him uh, at the end.
2: Yeah, I have not witnessed a stroke, thankfully, and I don't wish to. And I don't know if that's accurate, but I mean, I called it last episode. I said, there's no way this guy is surviving this prison. Yeah. Um, I think that they were hinting at that right away that this guy is struggling just to keep up and do his job. And this place right. is not a place that keeps you around just to sit around. They are here because they're able-bodied.
1: Yeah. And this uh speech that Mon Mothma makes, she's uh was it interesting reactions, you know, people shouting, you know, both sort of pro-Emperor and pro-Mon Mothma. Uh so I think they're really seeding the uh environment, the story environment for us to to say that, you know, things are more fractious in the universe than or in the galaxy than than um than they can show us. So just like you were saying before, like, you know, things get bigger and bigger, one of the things that you can do is sort of drill down. And in this we can they I think they tell us very effectively what the political tone in the empire is. There's some people for and some people against. And it's getting very tense.
2: Well, and we remember Mon Mothma said in a previous episode, well, it's my job to be a nuisance publicly. Right. right. And, and to be this pain in the butt that, I, that they can just dismiss and, and that they could monitor and think that they have control over. And that's my important role. Right. And I, I will say, I don't recall if we've seen before this season the Galactic Senate outside of the prequel trilogy, out, at least in a live action format. Do you know?
1: Um... I don't think so. I can't think, I don't think there were any, nope, there weren't any scenes in, in Rogue One. So yeah, outside of the, the first three movies, I think you're right.
2: It's really fascinating to see how the Empire was operating politically mm-hmm. during this intermediary period, especially for people like me and you who have not read the extended books. I told you I'm working on Thrawn. It is right. a heavy read. Oh, so really? I'm, uh, and you're,
1: this is for, you're like a lore master of Tolkien and other things.
2: I'm much more rooted in fantasy, and I feel much more comfortable in those settings. Oh, okay. And when I get into sci-fi, I start to go, oh, boy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Okay.
2: Yeah, but no, it's it's a good read. It's just, it's just a little heavy. But I, I don't think that, at least on screen, we've seen these kind of politics playing out. And it's really interesting to see how standard politicians react in this environment, because I mean, it's possible that George Lucas didn't even conceive of a galactic senate during the original trilogy, and that that was a creation for the prequel trilogy only. And to see it sort of connect like this is a really great way to bring more of that political intrigue from the prequel trilogy that a lot of people liked, a lot of people thought was boring, Mm -hmm. and bring that into the imperial era.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And it's really interesting too how we go from like a, a really zoomed in you know individual on a planet you know say with Bix to somebody like Luther who's sort of going to uh, to all of these other planets but also being on Coruscant and then to Mon Mothma and drawing that through line from a galactic senator all the way down to like a junk shop owner on some sort of you know salvage planet. It's really brilliant moving us through the scale of, the, uh, of this universe, of this galaxy, uh, to give us these different pictures and perceptions of this really rich and complex world.
2: Yeah, I love the different lenses that the show is using. And I love that, again, these are all new lenses. These are not lightsabers. Yeah. These are not Jedi. These are not Skywalkers. Oh my God, Get stop with the Skywalkers.
1: <laughs> We've had enough of them. They've done enough damage, haven't they? So you're not—you're uh, telling me that you're not going to watch uh, *Tales of the Jedi*. I'll watch *Tales of the Jedi*.
2: Of course, I'm going to watch *Tales of the
1: Jedi*. I was actually listening to the Midnight Boys, uh, who are over on the Ringerverse uh, podcast network, um, and. Uh they had some coverage of, of Tales of the Jedi, and they all really liked it. Um, so that gave me... I've heard it's good. Yeah. I, I, I was like, oh, you know, I thought they were going to go, like, with baby Ashoka. I was like, oh, wait, no, please don't jump the shark with, like, Scrappy-Doo and, you know, like, you know, baby, just baby anything, you know. <laughs> I was just like, no, don't do it. But I, I, people say it's good, so I might check it out. They're short. I guess they're, like, 15 minutes each or something.
2: Oh really? I thought they were longer yeah. than that. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So it's like an hour total, I think, for the whole whole batch of them.
2: Maybe when Andor's wrapped up we can chat about like the whole season or something like that.
1: That'd be interesting. Yeah, we could throw it in on something. Sounds good. Okay.
2: All right. Any more thoughts on this scene, this interlacing scene, David?
1: No. I think it was a great pacing um thing though, because as we bounce around uh to uh you know, checking in with all the important characters. Um. in this episode, they move us through the scenes that we need to have us moved through to set up for what's going to come in the next couple of um, acts in this episode.
2: Okay, well, there's trouble afoot in the tunnels as rumors are spreading through the prison.
1: This uh, was another eye-opening scene, right? So, you know, first we get that Cassian is, uh, you know, he's, he's got the place sussed out. Not only does he have to play sussed out that he has, you know, plans in motion and that those plans involve other inmates. And then we find out that there's a, uh, a a factory-wide communication system among the inmates. Like, that was mind-blowing.
2: And Kino knows how long it takes to go from one floor to another.
1: Oh, my gosh. That exposition was, am- on rewatch, I was like, what, you know, Very carefully watching and rewinding to pick up every detail of that, and that was really incredible.
2: Yeah. People are clocking this. Everybody seems to be aware of it. How have the guards not picked up on this, or do they not care?
1: They don't care. Nobody's listening,
2: right? Right. Very, very, very strange. Um, I think Cassian's right. And this is also a through line for Cassian I meant to mention, which is, in one of the first episodes, Luthan says, Cassian, how do you do it? How do you go in someplace and steal this Imperial gear that everybody wants? He says, if you walk in and you seem like you know what you're doing, nobody's going to notice you. And I think Cassian knows how to avoid being seen. I mean, you see him successfully pass off two fake names already this season.
1: Right. And one to the degree that they, he's in imperial custody and they still don't know who he really is.
2: It still bothers me that they don't have biometrics. <laughs> but all right. All right. It's a big universe. Moving on. The show is near perfect, and that's like my one... <laughs> Right. Breaking thing for me is where are the biometrics here? I literally my phone has face recognition. You're telling me that in the Star Wars universe they can't tell that they have Cassian andor in custody?
1: <laughs> that one's just gonna have to stand on its own. All right. Just on the complexity of that scene, not only from the staging and the the, the visual nature of it as well, but the fact that The inmates have somehow figured out sign language communication that spans the entire factory, albeit slow, that there is still some sort of – that is just uh, – I'm I'm awestruck that they – that prisoner, you know, that these inmates could figure that out.
2: Well, I think they have certain, like, designated signers, right? Yeah, is, right. There's people who speak this. It's not just everybody knows the, the language.
1: But then, like, you know, you, you serve your time and then you're out. Like, have you trained somebody else how to speak it? Like, there's a there's just a, a beautiful, uh, just something about, like, human nature and being in that type of environment and being able to create a culture of communication that actually is effective considering the circumstances. That's really extraordinary.
2: Even if it does take a few days to get from one floor to another. (laughs) That's right. Okay, so let's head over to the Mothma estate where Vel, Mon Mothma's
1: cousin, shows up to visit. Such a great twist. I am so glad that they played this the way it did. Um, You know, last episode we had uh, Cinta saying to, to Vel... Like you know, Vel was like, "Oh well, who are you going to be?" And well, I could be a rich girl running away from my family. And and Val was like, "Oh, that's cold, even from you." That right there seeded this for us, right? And, and a lot of people were like, "Oh well, who's Vel? Like, what is she running away from? Is she related to Luthen?" Like, there's all these. Nobody had the Mon Mothma connection, and so really well played there um, to further round out Mon Mothma's world and to give her even more to be freaking out about.
2: I love their relationship. Mm. I think that they both find each other charming. Mm -hmm. I think that they love each other dearly. Mm. And I think that both are worried about each other for different reasons. I mean, Vel feels like her sister is trapped in the Capitol and is is about to just get caught at any time. I mean, she's right. I mean, if they figure her out, she's right there. They can take her right away. And even her driver is on the side of the empire and maybe even her husband. We're not sure about that.
1: I don't think so. But anyway, We'll get. We'll get there.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we we've learned a little bit about parents' motivations. But as far as her situation, yeah, she's really vulnerable right now. And Vel is out there kicking ass, taking names, but also vulnerable in different ways. I mean, she could have gotten killed. She could have gotten captured on the quite easily Aldani mission. Yep. Yeah. And and I mean, what would have happened if Vel got captured? I mean, I feel like they would have been able to figure out at some point that that was Mon Mothma's cousin.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. They would have when they came in for the cleanup, they would have found her body and and
2: right. So I think they're both putting each other at risk in different ways and putting themselves at risk. And I think that they both also understand the necessity of what the other is doing. So it's a really great relationship. I love how Mon Mothma is telling her, you know, go pretend to be a rich girl for a while. Yeah. Just just put up the front for a while, just like I am, just like I am as the nuisance politician. What do you think, David?
1: (laughs) The, the way that she used Sinta's lines uh, with Mon Mothma, which she had used against her, was really a nice play. Oh, man. It doubled down on Sinta's line, I'm a mirror, you love me because you see what you need. Like, Vel really took that to heart. And then, oh, wait, I'm just having a complete like brain explosion here, too. I, and I can't believe I missed it on the last episode. When Vel is riding the shuttle... And then they, um, they we see sort of Vel's face in the mirror, but then they, they cross dissolve to Sinta's face. Oh, like that is just great storytelling right there because she's seeing herself in her own reflection, but then the, visually they give us Sinta in the, in the fade, you know, over like, oh, so brilliant. And so then for her to use that same line on Mon Mothma, really interesting development. It's not that she just sort of, Hold this line out, but it's the fact that they're telling us that Vel is doubling down, right? She's she's was wavering, and now she's doubled down, and she's getting harder.
2: She's hard boiled. We're gonna have a dozen yes. hard boiled eggs by the end of this <laughs> yeah, season. It certainly
1: are a few cracked ones and a few a uh, few hard boiled ones for sure. <laughs> um, Lida uh, he lets me do anything I want. Wow. (laughs) And then when, when Vel gives Mon Mothma a look like, wait, what, what did your daughter just say?
2: Yeah. Um, Vel is hilarious at being the, the fun aunt. I guess she's going by aunt with Lita, even if, even if she's a cousin. Yeah. But also looking at Mon, like, hey, you should address this right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was rough. I, I, um, I still don't know what's going on with Lita. I mean, I think she's obviously suspicious of of Mon Mothma and Tay um, and and what's going on there. But yeah, she's, and I don't know if it's just that, you know, 13-year-old, you know, starting to try to differentiate from their parents and then siding with her dad over her mom. And, you know, and her dad just wants to have fun and just be lighthearted and not be political. You know, so I'm not sure if that's just the extent of it, or if there's more yet to come with uh, between Lita and Mon Mothma.
2: Perrin is the fun parent, right? Parent yes. is the one who is not necessarily doing all his parental duties, but is the one that you want to hang out with when you're a kid.
1: Another big question: um, Vel says to Mon Mothma, and I'm paraphrasing here. Remember the vow that you took, or you know, you took a vow. And so that's going to be one of my open questions that I'm going to be tracking uh, across the, the episodes and the seasons is, what was that vow?
2: Right. Great question. Great question. Was it to each other? Was it to mm-hmm. Chandralan? Was it to their parents or something like that? Or I guess mom's parents?
1: Did Lutham have them swear, you know, swear something? Who knows?
2: Okay. We've got to head back to Cassian for a little bit, because he's pestering Kino for information while they're in their cells.
1: I got to say that right off the bat, the camera work in the scene was really cool. So the camera pans and pivots and, and, and vertically shifts all at the same time. It sort of rolls through space. It pulls up from Kino around to Melchi and then down back to Cassian, if I remember. I can't quite remember the, the angle in my head now. But it was just the most beautiful piece of camera work. There was one other one that really caught me. It was a lot more simple, and that was um, when Brasso was walking past the uh, uh, old hotel in the last episode that's been turned into the Imperial uh, headquarters. But this camera, the way it shifted, it gave us a close-in and relationship uh, you know, of where Kino's Room is relative to Melchi's relative to uh, Cassian's, but it's in a really tight corridor space. And yet, and we get the whole angle of the, um, the, the depth of the, the room itself down the corridor, but then the, the positioning and how they're sort of a prisoner stacked over another prisoner, but then they pivot it really tightly back around to Cassian. Really exceptional camera work.
2: Very good camera work. You're, I'm going to leave the visuals to you because I think you've <laughs> described them very well. And that is uh, kind of your specialty. I'll, I'll, I'll handle the theme song.
1: I think it was down, around, and over. Anyway, I've, I'm going to be like replaying this. I'm going to go watch it again right after we finish recording this. So Cassian just drip, drip, drip on Kino, right? He's sawing away at him just like he was sawing on that pipe.
2: Right. And, Cass- and Kino goes, go to bed. Right. My clock with all my... Days left will never betray us. He's like he's like his old friend uh, Gollum. He used to play,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. A little Gollum in, in his in his uh, thing. One last thought uh, on this is right at the end of the scene, Cassian and Melchi exchange a look, which I think tells us a little bit more about their developing relationship.
2: They're besties.
1: Well, and, and we've gotten—this uh, is a, all over uh, a lot on the internets and on the Discord, and I, we got an email about it, too, um, that Melchi is a character in Rogue One. And specifically, he's involved in um, breaking Jin Urso out, and then he's later uh, pivotable part—pivotable? I can never say that word. Pivotal.
2: Every, every episode. You got to do it once.
1: I can never say the word pivot—every every episode, do I have to say pivotable now? Once, once an episode, it's
2: it's part of the Patreon package, actually.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, join the Patreon and hear me mispronounce words. Um, the he's a, an important part of the battle on Scarif, and so I think that that look further develops that relationship. Um, so whether you know that you know they that Melchie's in Rogue One or not, just the fact that. Um, they exchange this look, and earlier on, obviously, Melchi had said to him, forget about the clock. And even earlier than that, you know, he makes sure that the table knows Cassian's name. And so there's a, there's a bond that's forming here that's going to play out, not only, you know, through this prison break, but all the way in through to the rebellion.
2: Yeah, I like that they're developing their relationship now. I guess that's the first Rogue One character we've been introduced beyond Cassian in the yeah. series.
1: Yep, exactly.
2: So that's pretty cool to see. I wonder if Kino is going to live, and if he does, if they're going to have him doing something in the background that we didn't see in Rogue One.
1: I do, well, yeah, I, I don't know that, um, I'm not sure about Kino's uh, future.
2: What's your over-under on it being a Snoke origin
1: story? Oh, it's totally not. It's just double casting. I, I don't think it at all yeah. has anything to do with, uh, with Snoke or any of that stuff. I think that would be too cute I think by so, half. too. Yeah.
2: I think Tony Gilroy would uh, would uh, avoid that at all costs.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay, so back in the ISB headquarters, Dedra reports on results from Ferex and her interrogation of Bix. Well, the interrogation of Bix was pretty brutal, but I guess I'm glad it yielded results and it wasn't for
1: nothing. (laughs) Yeah, uh, clearly they broke her um, quite effectively.
2: I am glad that they told me that this was an extremely effective technique and that they didn't lie. And I'm right. also glad I didn't have to see it, really. I just saw the very beginning and the end. That's okay.
1: We didn't need any any more than they they did. And then they brilliantly lay out what they did learn in this scene. It, you know, just exactly what we need to know.
2: Right. So in this scene, we have Dedra's assistant yes. interrupting her. Right. How did you feel about that one?
1: I, you know, um, I've been debating that in my mind, and I've heard some other, you know, conversation uh, about that. Was he backing up Deidre to support her, or was he trying to make a play? My feeling at this point is he's still too junior to even think about getting a, a supervisor's chair for himself. He's way too young and inexperienced. I think this was simply a play to back up his boss and to make his boss look good and to, you know, and for him to catch a little spotlight as well, because he's been working his ass off, quite frankly. So I didn't take this as uh, initially, I took it as, as potentially sinister, but I think in, in um, subsequent watching and, and more thinking about it, I think he's just, you know, making a play to, to back her up. And, and she might have been struggling on connecting the detail about what was next, and he saw her hesitate for a second, and then he, he brought it in, and he made her look good, ultimately in that scene, I think.
2: Well, the problem is when you have an entity like the Empire, where you have all these people clawing for positions of power and influence, you can never really know who is falling next to the ambition train. Right, and so again, evil divides itself. We're going back to JRR. Uh, join us for the Silmarillion read along. <laughs> and I think that I'm still questioning whether perhaps he is looking for a bigger seat at the table. If not replacing Dedra, I don't think he has any malice towards her. But I think that um, I think that he would like a, a bigger seat at that table.
1: Yeah, I-, I think ultimately, you know that that plays to his benefit. I. But I don't think he's going to do it at the—I uh, I, I don't think he's going to um, uh, throw Deidre under the bus just yet. I think that that's a long ways off.
2: Next time he talks unprompted, though, in a meeting, Kyburn's going to get the wildfire going right under his chair. <laughs> right. It's all over for him.
1: Boom. Because, you know, we see him later in, the, in an upcoming scene, basically uh, having already taken a couple of detail taken care of a couple of uh, next-step details. And I think it's all— I think he's caught up in the energy of the chase, too, and, and he's trying to be—I think he's just trying to be a junior officer that's trying to be a good officer so that he can get his, ultimately, right? I, I, I think that's true. A very unkarne like uh, character, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, quick, Another quick visual. They gave us a scene of that walkway with the ISB hologram there. That's an intentional scene placement. A, it, it's doing double duty. A, it's, it's locating us at ISB headquarters. They could have just cut right to the chamber and we would have been fine. But they, they take a beat to give us that because they um, have a later scene coming up so that when we see this scene, uh, this, this area again, we know where we are and we understand what that means. So it was a really nice piece of uh, visual setup for later storytelling. So nice little uh, establishing shot there.
2: That's very cool. I like the way that they're doing the transitions in here and the way that they're uh, giving us these lived-in spaces. And yes. And I think I've never thought of the Empire as a lived-in space before, but the ISB headquarters, you know, it seems like everybody has a good time there.
1: It's true. It's true. <laughs> so they're setting up Marva as bait. That is not good, Cassian's mom. Yep.
2: Yeah. Which, by the way... I saw a lot of Reddit speculation of the comment last episode with Marva saying, I was checking the tunnels under the hotel, that Marva was going to go break Bix out, Yep, and that is totally shattered now. I mean, maybe after this next episode, but how is she going to do that? She's being monitored 24-7, they said.
1: Right. Yep. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think that would be, again, a cheap way out. Another show would have done that. I mean, obviously, obviously she they... There's this is a very economical show. So if they drop a line like that about the tunnel, it means something's going to be involved in that tunnel.
2: I'm thinking Brasso.
1: Possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Um but the what I was going to say was uh <laughs> right at the end of the scene, Deidre gives a little smile to see, right after she says that they're on her full time. Deidre's enjoying this. She's enjoying the shit out of this.
2: Yes. Almost as much as Carn enjoys the look of her face. Oh
1: <laughs> God. Can we Every just not get to that scene? You take. Creepy. Every move you make. Can we get Sting in here? Oh God. Uh <laughs> it's your podcast. You can do what you want. Next up,
2: we're back on Arkina 5. Kino reminds the 5-2D crew that it's just another day, another shift. Don't worry about what you've been hearing. Don't worry about any of this sign language nonsense. Let's get through the day. We'll escape, just like we told Cassian overnight. Get that thought out of your head. Uh, We we don't need any of that in here. You're not going to survive if you think you're going to escape.
1: But but it's in his head. Cassian's already gotten to him, and he's he's really struggling to deliver these lines. I mean, he's he's barking. It's a script. He said it a thousand times, but there is a look on his face, and he even says, sort of under his breath until we know what's going on so a, a a seed of doubt has been placed in his mind cassian has been effective
2: right and the fear in general i mean i don't think that anything has ever been unpredictable in this prison as far as kino sees it i think he i think kino has felt for a while that At least with this prison, he knows what he's getting. He has this amount of days on his counter. He gets this kind of food. Right. He's responsible for X numbers. He's responsible for beating these people by playing this game. And as long as he has that to hold on to, this is not a dead end. And so the longer he's there and the longer rumors are sprouting up and developments later happen, the more he goes, oh, no, this might not be the game I thought it was.
1: Right. And then when Cassian gives him the line, the less they think we know, the better.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? So, play dumb, play simple, um, and they'll overlook you because they're so arrogant, and they have, set, they have created such a system, and they think that you are so bought into that system that we actually have the advantage here.
2: Okay, but is this line in contradiction with nobody's listening?
1: Yes, nobody's listening. So it is, and it's, it's an interesting tension, isn't it? I, I was thinking about this as well, because um, in the tunnel or in their room, like, where are they watching? When are they watching and listening? Cassian, more than anybody in, well, I, I would say he, probably in this whole facility, he's probably one of the few people that knows the Empire the best he knows the empire better than the empire knows itself in some ways. He knows how to slip in, he knows how to slip out. And so he's saying, and on the one hand, yeah, they're not listening, they don't care what we talk about in our rooms because they, they've got us, they could fry us like that. But then when they're in the hallway, he's like, play dumb, play simple, because we don't want to give them any, any tips. I, still, I don't know that it's contradictory, I just think it's nuanced.
2: I guess, I guess what Cassian is getting at, if I'm being generous about this interpretation, is if a fight breaks out on the floor and people are going nuts, then they will notice that. Yeah. What they're not noticing is the conversations we have in our bunks. Right. As long as everything appears orderly, they don't care about the specifics.
1: Right. And the numbers are getting met and, you know, that's it. That's fine. Right. And, you know, as many times as you want to punch Melchi, you know, you're free to do so. Because oh, you're the unit manager. <laughs> Poor Melchie, man. <laughs> like, he just getting, he keeps getting socked by Kino.
2: Not great. Not not a great life, Melchie. <laughs> so let's get back to Karn and his mother having breakfast. Oh, she gosh. makes him two meals a day, David. <laughs> and one of them is Cocoa Puffs, but the other one could be fancy. We just don't know.
1: What if I let your neglect drive me insane? <laughs> What a line! That's the slap and the hug, right? You know, right when he shows up at her door after you know uh, leaving uh, Morlana. One, uh, she slaps him and then hugs them, and uh, and this is exactly this thing. Like it's just this guilt ridden. I love you so much, but I'm just gonna guilt trip the f out of you. (laughs) It's such a messed up relationship. Karn's
2: mother is very emotionally manipulative. I mean, she just plays on guilt. That's her whole life is how do I guilt my son into doing something for me? And Karn doesn't fall for it either. Karn is actually deeply resentful of his mother.
1: He does throw her bone. He does throw her bone with his promotion, though.
2: Yeah. So when he said he got a promotion, I thought he was lying. I thought he was lying at that point. I was thinking, Uh all right, so he's obviously doing a ton of other things, and he's lying about a promotion so that he can excuse his time out of the house. But as we see later, both can be true.
1: Both can be true. And, and, I, and what he's been doing in his extra time, um, I just thought he was just trying to you know, track down Andor some more, but he's got a new, mm. new interest.
2: You know, the word incel was thrown out in The White Lotus uh, this week. <laughs> I think we may need to bring it into this show, too. It's not great with Karn here. So yeah. back in Narquina 5, we've got a lot of quick breaks here. Back in Narquina 5, we have Olaf again struggling to keep up, and things aren't going well with Olaf.
1: Yeah, this whole scene, I was just waiting for Olaf to like lose a finger or a hand or something. I was just on pins and needles for this whole thing.
2: But can we appreciate that this is a horrific and terrifying scene that has no gore? People rely on gore a ton with scenes like this. And I think that a lot of other shows would have done that, maybe not in Star Wars. But this was a great way to have an adult moment in Star Wars where someone's dying from a stroke, which is a horrific way to die. Like, let's not downplay that. Right. But at the same time, there's no, like, on-screen gore. They're not shocking us with anything. They're painting a horrific picture with something much more menial.
1: That's, um, that's really interesting. It's a really interesting point. That's um, the way that they're driving the emotional tension of, of this scene with a very mundane medical thing that just happens. But in this world, in this framing, it's, it is, it's horrific. It's terrifying.
2: And the horror is that he has 40 days left. It's not that he lost an arm. <laughs> oh, God. Right. Well, he kind of has 40 days left. He probably has forever left because uh, of what we learn later in the episode. But theoretically, he had the light out at the end of the tunnel and he just couldn't get there.
1: Yeah, which makes it really tragic. Which makes that that, the whole thing uh, very right very sad.
2: Well, Olaf will try to get you a medic, but no
1: promises. (laughs) And the way that they tried to care for him, I mean, yeah, you know, you don't want to lose productivity on your team, but there is definitely a a bond that was forming uh, amongst everybody. And uh, you know, they weren't you never see cruelty among the, the at least at the table of seven, right? You know, they're 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 very supportive. And, uh, and again, it just makes that whole thing just more tragic.
2: I was sad for Olaf.
1: And even Kino was like, you only got 40 left to go. You can do it. You can do it. You know, it was just like, ah, man, real bummer.
2: Because you can see that that's what Kino is holding on to is that we're all going to get out of here eventually. Right. And that, that put another nail in the coffin for literally, but also for, for Kino's hopes and dreams. Would you like to rejoin the breakfast club, David? Oh, boy, not this breakfast. <laughs> We've got more breakfast ahead. Uh, so, on top of Karn and his mom having breakfast, Vel is having breakfast with Mon Mothma and her family, Perrin and Lita. Interesting breakfast scene, huh?
1: Very. The, um, the sparring over Tay was interesting.
2: Yeah who is an ex-boyfriend we did not know until right now.
1: Uh they were in school. They were in primary school together. I mean, that doesn't I I didn't
2: date everybody I went to primary school with.
1: <laughs> I mean, Perrin and and Mon Mothma got married at 16, so there you go. Uh the cha- go. the Chandralan way. I you know, going back to Perrin here, I I can't see him actually going to the extent of Ratting out Mon Mothma. he's a jerk. He just wants to have fun. He's pr- he's very disillusioned in some ways. He's he's with somebody that you know you know like oh it'll be interesting to watch the crown coming up because there's some of these issues here right. He was like ah oh, you know like I'm stuck in this life. I just want to have you know fun and and be carefree instead of having all of this trappings of being a senator's husband and and stuff you know uh, around me. So I don't. I don't foresee him ratting her out in some way, but I don't see him... I I mean, I think this is just normal husband and wife stuff uh, for two people who are married and trapped in a marriage that that neither of them really want to be in. I don't know that it it goes to the the level that he would actually sacrifice her. No,
2: I don't think so, because I think he understands that if she goes, he goes.
1: That's true, right.
2: But also, I love that Vel is uh, is saying, well, all the good ones are taken, and just uh. really sassing Perrin <laughs> in a way that I don't think Perrin really totally comprehended, but Mon Mothma certainly does. I yeah. love how charmed Mon Mothma is with her cousin. Right, right. Every single time Vel makes a quip, Mon Mothma is just smirking and trying to hide her face from Perrin. Right. So that was an awkward breakfast.
1: Closing thought on this scene? Okay. Uh, and I think it, echo- it goes even into, to, um, uh, it buttresses your point here uh, uh, more about how Mon Mothma and Vel are really connected with each other, so that when Vel leaves, we have this really beautifully framed shot of Mon Mothma standing in the entryway, and it's just a simple camera move. We're just panning back. We're not even zooming. We're just moving the camera back, and you know, Mon Mothma is getting further away from us. So we're getting that, that, that distance, like that, that separation, uh, that um, we're not close to another person when, you know, most, you know, human beings, you know, we, we're, we, generally speaking, we want to be around other people, and we do better when we're around other people. And so by separ- by creating that uh, increased distance, we're, we're creating a sense of, of loss and longing and, and separation. And that shot is so beautifully framed. The beautiful pastel whites, her dress, the sort of octagonal geometric shape of the room. It's just a beautiful way to give us a tone and a vibe of what Monmouth. But Here she is in this gorgeous room, you know, very opulent, very luxurious, and she's wearing a beautiful dress, and yet she's just utterly alone and in this sterile environment, completely isolated from one of the people that she loves the most, who's just left her.
2: Well, and I think that what you're saying goes to how we got sort of a closer look into Mon Mothma's internal personality. We got closer to Mon Mothma here. Uh, We got let in, I guess. Yeah. And then as her sister leaves, she becomes the distant political figure that we've come to know. Yes, yes through her interactions with everybody, including including her husband. Yeah. Like, she is still the political face in front of her husband. Right. Which is very interesting how Vel is the only one who seems to be able to break through this hard exterior.
1: Oh, right, right. Like, when they, when when Lita was putting on the dress in that earlier scene, like, the moment uh, she was out of earshot, like, boom, the mask comes down, and she's like, my God, where have you been? It's like, oh, I can't believe you're here. Like, all the emotion wants to come pouring out, and Vel's just like, Nah, nah, girl, hold it in, hold it in. We've, you know, we get what's on the margins, but you know the, the rebellion's got to be first here, and and I think that's just so hard for Mon Mothman because she's a human being; she wants to feel, and if you can't express your feelings and connect with other people about your feelings, it's a prison, right?
2: Yeah, and Mon Mothman is sacrificing a lot to do this, and oh, so my is Bell so much. It's great to learn more about Mon Mothma. I didn't know her very well before this. I don't. Know, I guess we never nobody. Really, did. Yeah,
1: nobody really did.
2: Yeah, and it's really great to see behind this curtain, especially in, in a show like Andor, where we weren't sure what we were going to get with the show. I feel like we're getting to know so many side characters so much better.
1: Yeah, and and gives uh, gives the rest of the story so much more richness. Then so that when we do see her in Star Wars or in in Rogue One, it's 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 a lot more meaningful.
2: Yeah. So back on Ferrix, Bix recovers from being tortured by Dedra and Gorsch.:
1: I only have one note on this, and that is um, Bix's breathing, sound of her breathing, really reminded me of Marva's uh, breathing uh, in the previous episode when uh, Brasso and, and Bix are taking care of her after she's taken that fall. And it just mm. just uh, it just creates that emotional resonance between the two characters. And the fact that
2: you didn't need anything physical to create the same reaction.:
1: Yes. Exactly. And it was such a short shot, right? It was just, just Bix, sort of <laughs> a wet rag of a, of a person, you know, just trying to get their wits back around them. Uh, and it just tells us a lot of her, her of, of what happened to her.
2: Yeah, I'm really curious where her story is going to go next, because really not a lot left for her to do, I guess, on Ferex, other than maybe help Marva and Brasso stage a coup.
1: I have no idea what they're going to do with Brasso and Bix, but I am totally in Tony Gilroy's hands on this one. I'm like, yes, just tell me, give to me whatever it is that you have planned, because I'm here for it. So, incel
2: Karn stalks (laughs) Dedra, and Dedra learns of a break in her case. Let's talk about the, uh, the incel moment for a moment. The stalking. Sure. The eyes of Karn were scarier than anything else in this episode, quite
1: honestly. I, I am having a hard time processing the scene. Uh, there's so many things happening here. And this is where I'm, you know, background. I'm mean, like, Deidre's like torturing, you know, characters we like. And she's like running game on, on the proto-rebellion. But yet in this moment, I am so sympathetic for her to be, she's just, she's in shock that she's being confronted in this way. And it really gives me some uh, additional insight into like, you know, what happens in workplaces and in our modern day world when these kinds of things happen. Uh, And it it was really, yeah, it's just it's hard to process.
2: The ISB needs an ISB, right?
1: Why didn't she just arrest his ass right then and there? Why didn't she just blast him?
2: Especially since this clearly is an ongoing thing. I mean, he made clear that he watches her regularly. This is not a one time
1: thing. She's like, are you following me? And he's like, well, I come to your work every once in a while and do this. And he's like, you just admitted to stalking her.
2: It's very interesting how people will go at great lengths to protect others and to take action drastically for others. But when it's them personally being threatened, they become a lot more cautious.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And I think that that's a thing that you see in the real world generally. Yes, I mean, exactly. People are so much better at giving friends advice than they are taking advice of, them, of themselves and Dedra is someone who's incredibly competent at taking down threats to the Empire, but when it's a threat to her, nope, can't do anything about it, just stay away from me.
1: She, yeah, it really freaked her out. Like, this was a super creep stuff, and she's not used to it, right? She's an ISB supervisor. She is almost untouchable, and for Karn to touch her, you know, to, to physically grab her and restrain her for that moment was, I think it was just shocking to her.
2: I am not excited to see where Karns going. No, this is going way different than I thought it was going to go.
1: Completely, I was, I was, and I was very early on, you know, pointing to the crossing of the crossing of paths of these two characters, and this is not at all what I thought was going to happen. I thought they were going to take the cheap way. They're going to team up and find
2: Cassian Andor. Nope. Exactly. Yep. <laughs>
1: nope. Brilliant.
2: Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. man. Oh. It was deeply uncomfortable writing, and it was performed excellently, and I hated every minute of it.
1: Justice and Beauty in the Galaxy? Oh, man. That was, <laughs> that was mind-blowing.
2: Okay, so now let's talk about what happened in that office, where Dedra gets uh, a, an update that they found a ship that seems to be associated with Axis and the Rebellion.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like they got one of Anton Krieger's guys, and uh, he was outside of that guard place that Luthen was talking to uh, Saw Guerrera about.
2: Hmm. A lot of interesting developments here. I like that the initial reaction was to do something obvious. Right. And over time, we get to the point where this is being handled a lot more intelligently.
1: Yeah, very much. I like that... Um, Deidre says she's going to uh, interrogate remotely. Is that like <laughs> Zoom <laughs> is torture Zoom. enough? <laughs> My God. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh. So. oh, boy. OK, so next we're back in Mon Mothma's estate. And Tay is there doing his business consulting for her. Uh, and he proposes that since she is about 400,000 credit, 400, credits short because of her previous activity and she needs to clean that up ASAP, she should meet with Davo Skolden, which she has a visceral reaction to and is very opposed to.
1: Yeah. I thought it was really interesting to watch her reaction because Tay was leading her down this garden path and at every turn she's like, "You've thought this out already. You have somebody in mind." Like she's just like, "Don't play me like this. Like if you want to tell me something, tell me something." She was not happy with Tay in this scene at all.
2: No, she wasn't. And, um, you know, it was really interesting to see her be sort of one step ahead of him, though, at every time. Uh, he's, he says, I'm going to do the slow reveal. And she says, no, I'm going to do the exposition for the audience. So what do you think is going on with Davos Golden? Who, do, who is this guy? He's, he's Chandralan. We know that, right?
1: Yeah, and I couldn't find anything on the internets uh, yet about him. So I think he's a, a, I think he's a brand new construction.
2: Okay. So, we're looking at somebody along the lines of Jabba it seems like.
1: Yeah, hopefully not a giant fat slug, uh but certainly, you know, uh, a kingpin type figure. Uh um, Yeah,
2: yeah. Somebody somebody in the same profession, I should say. Did you watch uh, Narcos at all? I watched season 1 a really long time ago.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, I think he, there was in later seasons there were some these guys like this who were very very high up, you know, publicly facing uh, businessmen who had, you know, strong government connections. Uh, so I think he's, he's one of these uh, kinds of characters who is very plugged in and uh, is very dangerous.
2: You can see that Mon Mothma understands that this is a new risk.
1: Yeah, not happy at all. And I don't think Luthen's going to be happy if, when he learns about it.
2: Yeah, no, Luthen's not going to be happy about it at all. So back at ISB headquarters, Dedra is presenting her plan for Anton Krieger and how to get to him through this ship that they've caught. What do you think about the way that the ISB worked through their plan and got to the point where they think that they could really uh, get a tracker on Anton Krieger?
1: Yeah, again, really brilliant exposition. Like when the two late officers came in, or the one late officer came in, um, and, and how uh, Partagaz brings him up to speed and, and giving us the information that we need and the stakes that are involved here, uh, I thought this was really good. And it was very, again, the banality of evil. It was really interesting to see how the Empire, you know, is working, how they're actually making the sausage here. And how they're workshopping this idea to foul the ship and, and set a trap for a Krieger.
2: Yeah, and I really like that the Empire is not quite as incompetent as it has been in the past. It seems like, yes. unlike the, uh, the stormtroopers and their blasters, these security folks really know how to do
1: their job. That's right. Um, a, quick, uh, a couple of quick things I forgot to mention earlier. They mentioned Maya Pay in the previous ISB meeting. And uh, that was a name that was name-dropped by Saw Gerrera and uh, Luthan when they were talking. And in this scene, they mention a place called uh, Kefreen And that is the location of where Rogue One opened up. It was sort of that weird mining colony place. So they're doing fan service, but not in a fan service-y way. They're just being... Accurate to the world that we're living in, they're using the lore and the history and and the the places and the people that have been established, but not in a way to just like throw us member you know throw member berries at us, but actually like no, this is where this would be, this is how this would actually play out. Um, and so that was a, a couple of interesting details there. Um, uh, so Catherine, like it'd be interesting if we see any more of this, but that's where. Cassian meets that uh, agent in, at the very beginning of uh, Rogue One.
2: Yeah, I love how little this show uses nostalgia to yeah. manipulate emotions. I think that every emotional moment is earned in this show, and that's something that I hope that not just the Star Wars universe, but other universes start to take note of too, because I think, and uh, you know, it wouldn't be a Lower Hound's podcast if we didn't compare this to Rings of Power. I think that Rings of Power leaned way too heavily, and Marilyn Pukila, the Tolkien Scholar we have on regularly, she mentioned too, like, why is everything a Jackson movie reference?
1: Yeah, it really was, wasn't it?
2: And it doesn't need to be, and you can mm-hmm. have this story stand on its own legs. And and Cassian Andor's story, and Mon Mothma's story, and Luthen's story, all these stories stand on their own legs, and that's great.
1: Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think intelligent writing, not pandering to us as an audience, um, giving us the hooks. So for, you know, people who are steeped in the lore, there's, there's an extra dimension to dig into, but yeah, you don't have to know anything about Kafreen or Maya Pei in this show to actually get what those characters and places represent in the story.
2: Yeah. So speaking of emotional moments, oh, my we've got gosh. one left. Oh, man. Olaf has sadly passed. We see a uh, medic come to treat him and not really going to treat him. Nothing he can do for a stroke that already happened. So he's going to inject him with a a lethal dose of something and uh, let him go in peace. He says, you know, this is a better ending for him. And then Cassian uses this moment. And they, you know, after they learn that people are being reassigned to different floors after they finish their sentence. To ask Kino one more time how many guards on each floor, to which Kino replies, never more than
1: 12. Fist pump moment. Like, I was just like, yes! <laughs> was so earned. It was such a beautiful play. Cassian was working him and working him and working him. And in that moment when Kino realizes that there is no escape here, he, he finally... <laughs> Like, he finally, you know, succumbs to Cassian's pestering and gives him what he needs, which means that Kino's on board, right? He's all in now. Kino was in it only
2: because he was thinking that this was a real way out. That's why he was taking the game so seriously. Yeah, exactly. And he's out now. He's he's just going to do whatever he needs to do now. He, you know, I think seeing Ulaf dying basically said, well, I'd rather die in a good way trying to go out than die wasting away here for the rest of my life.
1: I thought it was um, interesting. The, the whole way that the, the whole progression of this scene where they muster the losing table into the center of the room and they zap them there in front of everybody to, you know, uh, you know, to the fact that, you know, Olaf only has, you know, 40 more to go and, you know, they're, they're trying to hustle him up. So like, the, the emotional arc uh, that, that Kino and everybody goes through here, it's, it just really makes his turning all that much more sweeter, because we see the horrific nature of this factory floor. The fact that we have to watch seven other human beings get, you know, zapped by this tungstoid, you know, floor, and that we're, you know, we're treated in, the, in this way, it, it just really makes... And then, you know, like you said, Kino's following the rules. And then once he rules that they once he learns that the rules aren't being followed on the other side, you know, yeah, really, really amazing.
2: Great way to end the episode. This was the first episode where I think I expected the ending. Oh, you did? Where as soon as he (laughs) said that, I said, "Okay, that's the end. I like knew I knew as soon as Cassian asked again that he was going to answer and that was going to be the end because that was such a great way to end it.
1: Yeah, it really was. It was boom. It was perfect. Left us on a high. And we know that coming out of eight and then now nine, we know that ten is just going to be just like they did with uh, four, five, and six when the heist actually happened. Like once it start, once the action starts rolling, it's not going to stop. David, do you hear that? Uh, no. What do I hear?
2: I think we have an incoming transmission from... Oh, it looks like from one of our listeners. So, all right, why don't we address that when we get back from this break? Okay, David, we've got some listener feedback coming in. Bix sent it over. Through the tower. Didn't get intercepted by ISB this time, so that's good. First up, we have Craig T. from the UK. He says, Hey guys, I was stoked to see you guys cover Andor after your excellent rings of power coverage, so consider me another long-term subscriber to your feed. Thanks, Craig.
1: Thanks, Craig. Thank you. That, that means a lot to us. We, we put a lot of effort into this, and it's really great to get, get this kind of feedback, so thank you.
2: We'll be here for a while. So Andor, he says... I have to admit, I was not interested in this at all when I first heard about it, but after six or so episodes and word of mouth being good, I gave it a go and I was interested enough with those uh, first two or three episodes that when it got going, I now find myself as eager as any of my favorite shows to see the next episode. I've been trying to put my finger on why this is just so much better in every way to the Disney Plus shows it follows. And all I can think of is it's just trying to be its own thing. It's not concerned about being fan service and appealing to everyone. And it's just concentrating on telling a compelling story. Add to that the casting, acting, world building, effects, sets, and much more. I feel it's too good to be labeled just another Star Wars property. It deserves to be its own thing without the Star Wars tag. I'm not dismissing what came before or trying to call them out, but rather trying to put it above the perceived notion that all the Star Wars, all the new Star Wars is somehow inferior to the original trilogy.
1: Craig, you are in good company. Thanks for joining us. And yeah, 100% agree with you on your take here. Um, I think, John, you were even saying at the beginning of like, you know, that it's hard to believe that this is actually a, you know, a Disney labeled uh, property or, you know, a a piece of content or, you know, show that they're producing. The other shows, uh, and I've said this before, um, it, it just felt like, it was very service y right? It was just like, oh, I've got my action figures here. I've got this cool digital void space or whatever. they I forget what they call it, the, the volume. And hey, we can, we can play and have some fun here. And um, this is something totally different. You know, Gilroy's come in and he says, we're not, you know, it's, it's set in Star Wars, but we're not writing a Star Wars story. We're writing, you know, this, this noir style thing. And um, and he's sticking to his guns on that. And I, I really think that what you're probably experiencing is what we're experiencing, which is the fact that somebody from outside of Star Wars came in with a clear vision. And I think um, uh, Diego Luna was also very involved in this process. And they had a clear vision for this character, and they stuck to their guns, and they actually got it through senior Disney Star Wars leadership. And it's amazing uh, I, that that they could ac- actually pull this off um, is is astounding.
2: So I didn't get very into Star Wars extended things until very recently, I'd say. I mean, I watched, like I said, I watched the Clone Wars as a kid, but I was never into like Rebels or things like that. Then when The Mandalorian came out, I I don't know what happened. I think I was as busy in my life at that point. I kind of missed that boat. And Obi-Wan, I tried to watch some episodes, and I felt like that was really fanservice-y. I heard Book of Boba Fett was awful, so I didn't even try that one. And this show is the first one that makes me, as someone who likes Star Wars a lot, but isn't in it as a diehard fan, this show is bringing me in, and this show is making me care about the characters within this, regardless of what universe I'm in. And it's just so great. I hope that we can see, again, more in this universe and other universes where they stop relying on the good works of the past and they make new stories. I don't care if you put the Star Wars label on it. Fine. But give me a new story that has new characters, that has new conflicts that we haven't seen before. Yeah. Next up, we've got Rick from Melbourne, Australia. Hey, guys. Absolutely loved your Rings of Power pre-show breakdowns. David, you're supposed to take out the praise. That's the bold move tradition.
1: Wait, I bolded it and put it in 24 font.
2: (laughs) All right. I don't think anyone has ever been able to explain Lord of the Rings as clearly as you guys. That's great, because I don't know anything about Star Wars. Thanks, Rick. (laughs) Anyway, one of the prisoners in Cassian's seven-man team is Melshi. Yes. Who appeared in Rogue One as the soldier who freed Jin Erso from the Wobani labor camp and fought at the Battle of Scarif.
1: Yep. Yeah, we covered that before. Thanks, Rick. Uh, thanks for enjoying the show. And yeah, absolutely. I am super psyched to see how Melshi and uh, Cassian not only get out of prison, but actually form the relationship. Because if, if Cassian, you know, wherever he goes or however he gets there, you know, Melshi's coming along, um, you know, whether he goes a different route or not, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how they set all that stuff up.
2: Yeah, good call. Good call, Rick. So let's move on to Drunkill, who says, did you notice that Cyril's mother says she spends her time to prepare two meals a day for him right before pouring more cereal into his bowl <laughs> of blue too, milk?
1: That's two that's preparations there, right?
2: <laughs> so good. I mean, I, I can't believe that she's gloating about pouring cereal into his bowl. It didn't yeah. even look like good cereal. It looked yeah. like the, it, you know, when you go to the store and you got the nice brand name cereal, Then if you go to the lowest shelf, they have, like, the bags of off-brand cereal.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah.
2: That's what it was. That's what Mama Karn is serving up.
1: She's frugal. She's, you know, she's got a household to keep. She's, uh... Good for her. Yeah.
2: This series is great, Drunko continues. Have either of you watched FX's The Americans? Because it is a high watermark for a spy thriller television show. Well, episode seven of Andor was written by a co-executive producer of The Americans. Have you watched The Americans, David?
1: Uh, no, that, um, it came out at a time when I was kind of busy in my life, uh, getting married, having a baby, a bunch of stuff, and and um, I don't know, I don't think I had it easily available for on, you know, we didn't have the streaming platforms like we did now, so it just kind of missed my attention. I, I watched a couple of episodes, and um, I, it was also, like, it was a bit if I remember right, a couple of tough episodes, they were were tough to watch because it was always sort of this high stakes thing, like they're almost always going to get caught. And it was a little bit too stressful for me at that particular part of my life. So yeah,
2: that is a stressful time in your life to be watching a spy thriller show. Yep, Drunkle finishes up. I always had high hopes for Andor when it was announced as having involvement by alums from the Americans. Thanks for the podcast and keep up the good work.
1: Yep. I, I totally agree. The, the, I, I didn't look at the writing team for Andor before. I just caught that first trailer. And I was like, wow, this is, uh, is going to be something different. So yeah, totally agree.
2: Very cool. Thanks, Drunkill. Next, we have Daniel from Discord. Again, join us on the Bald Move Discord if you want to talk in real time. Daniel says, finally caught up on this show, and I'm absolutely loving it. Only one minor gripe, not a lot of non-humans in the show. And when there are, they're usually relegated to the background somewhere and don't speak. So in that sense, it feels a lot less like Star Wars than most other things Disney has touched so far. But it's absolutely nailing it in all other aspects. I really enjoy watching Dedra and the ISB stuff. I love seeing the machinations and politicking of the Empire.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting... Thing that you, you mentioned there that it's a very human-centric story, I guess I'm fine with that. Yeah, I don't know why on a, from a production standpoint, if they, if they thought that that might set a wrong kind of vibe for this, um, not to mention practical effects and, and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, they put a lot of money into the show, so how they balance that out. But yeah, that is true. This is a very human-focused story.
2: Well, I think that Tony Gilroy came out in some kind of interview and basically said, yeah, I didn't want this to feel too much like Star Wars. I wanted you to get lost in this world that is not necessarily front forward Star Wars. Right. And so I agree with that decision generally. I think that maybe on Ferrex we could have used some more non-humans, maybe make Brasso a non-human or something like that. Right. As far as the prison, I think it makes sense because it seems to be focused on the biology of these people, the way that, you know, how much electricity do you need to shock them? Right. right. Um, You know, what do you feed them that's going to nourish them enough?
1: Yeah. Living quarters, Um, uh, factory floor, you know, like actually operating the machinery and things like that.
2: Right. Exactly. Is it the right height for all the different species? Things like that. So I'm okay with it in the prison. I think that maybe Ferrex. yeah, that's a right criticism that there should be more non-humans there and again in the empire you have a lot of human supremacy going on so that makes sense to not have humans uh non-humans there
1: we did have dr Quadpaw working on um on uh the one guy in episode uh what was that it's been so long episode six, six. Yeah. six. yes <laughs>
2: Yeah, and you had that, uh, that guy in episode, I think one, where Cassian is getting sort of bullied yeah. by that guy to pay a debt. So yeah, they've been around. They're not super forward in this show. I'm, I'm all right with it. We Look, we have plenty of shows where we get a lot of non-humans. I think it's okay for this one show to just focus on the humans. Yeah. All right. This is the end of the listener feedback segment, but we have one more piece of listener feedback that is a little spoilery that is it's tangentially it's it's touching on the spoiler uh, the spoiler tag. what do you think, David?
1: Yeah, so we talked a little bit about uh, saw Gerrera last episode and when Luther had that conversation with him, and we certainly if we've seen you know if you've seen Rogue One, you know you certainly saw him in there, and I feel like. we think that he's going to play a little bit more role in the rest of uh, the series. So we wanted to touch a little bit on uh, who he is, where he come, he came from and, and sort of what he's about. Um, Listener Dennis, who is one of our Patreon supporters. Thank you, Dennis. And he's also one of the mods over on the bald move discord server. And thank you for your moderation service, Dennis. Um, He pointed out that, you know, um, Saul Guerrera is in several episodes of The Clone Wars and, um, you know, mentions that uh, the character Saul Guerrera is very much uh, modeled on Shea uh, Guevara. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, what little is known, at least from Rogue One, have they've identified um, uh, Saul Guerrera as... You know, being a borderline terrorist because he's very extreme in his measures, and as we see in the conversation with Luthen, that he is um, probably very paranoid and uh, getting a little bit uh, more extreme, I think, as he goes on. So we thought, well, it'd be kind of interesting to take a look a little bit more in his at his backstory, and so we're putting this at the end of the show so that if you. Don't want to get spoiled by some of the stuff that we're going to talk about here because he does show up in several other shows. um, Then, you know, then you can be sort of safe. So going this point forward, we're going to be talking about um, three different animated series, The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, and The Bad Batch. And if you haven't seen those and you don't want to be spoiled, this is a time to check out. But otherwise, we'll talk a little bit about um, Saw Gerrera now.
2: Be warned. All right. Give me the whole deal on Saw Gerrera, David.
1: So, um, before we get into his backstory, I just wanted to touch on a little bit about what Saw said in the last episode when Luthen is trying to get him to meet with Anton Krieger. And, you know, he saw claims that Krieger's a separatist, right? And then he says, Maya Pei, a neo-Republican. Um, the Gorman Front and the Partisan Alliance are both sectorists, human cultists, galaxy partitionists. So here we see him. First, we have the great—I uh, uh, don't know if you ever saw *Monty Python* and, and *The Life of Brian*. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. Great scene there, where it's like, oh, the you know the, the liberation front and the front liberation, and you know all of this sort of fracturing of of rebellious movements, and nobody being able to to trust each other, and nobody be, nobody being able to come together in a unified front. So I thought it was really interesting that they were laying out those stakes and that Saul Guerrero is taking on a very anarchist uh, sort of standpoint. I think that's what Luthen labels him as, as an anarchist. I think that's right. Yeah. And then that we see that we have uh, separatists, neo-republicans, sectarists. Uh, he calls them human cultists, obviously in a uh, kind of a, uh, a way to slander them. So all about you know segmenting off the galaxy into different chunks based on race, based on politics. So going back to The Clone Wars, um, which is an animated series, um, in season five, I believe it's four episodes that Sal Guerrera shows up, and this is where we get his backstory. Oh, sorry, let me just step back quickly to Rogue One. What we did see in Rogue One was that he was a trusted family member of the Ursos and took care of Jin for a good chunk of her life, almost serving as a second father. But they don't explain why or how or what that connection was, just that, you know, uh, he was uh, this important figure in her life. Okay. From what it sounds like. The Rogue One production was in a little bit of a mess and Tony Gilroy was brought in to to clean it up. So what we do see of um Saw Gerrera in that feels like it's a little bit spliced together, feels like a little bit of things are missing. And I think a lot of what we had, we were going to get of Saw Gerrera and his backstory probably was on the cutting room floor. What a missed opportunity. Yeah, uh, it, it really was and for for a lot of people. I really wanted to see the original cut. I, I don't know, you know, there's a lot of, I, I don't know who's right. You know, you, you hear Tony Gilroy saying like, oh, well, it was quite a mess and, you know, we had to barely, you know, scrap it together. And, you know, maybe that's true. I don't know. I'm, I'm leaning more in that direction just because of the job that he's doing on this show.
2: Tony, you do whatever you want. We, we want you to do whatever you want on these shows, okay? The,
1: the too-long-didn't-read on this is that Saw is an extremist that he only trusts people he knows and that he can have uh, direct control over, and that, that these tendencies are deeply rooted from his past. And so that's where we jump back into the Clone Wars series. Uh, like I said, uh, season five, I think it's a four-episode arc, where we see, um, saw um, there's a planet called Ondarion, which uh, apparently tried to remain neutral in a fight between the Galactic Republic and the Confederacy of Independent Systems, both uh, representing a sor- sort of forms of, of fascism. The ruler, King uh, Dendup, who was deposed in a coup and saw Guerrera and his sister, Stila, mount a rebellion to reinstate him.
2: That doesn't sound very anarchist.
1: No, not at all. He was, um, and apparently he took up a very extreme position about their tactics and not wanting outside help and just doing it themselves. And so he and his sister have a lot of conflict over this. And Saw Gerrera himself is a very confrontational person, very difficult to work with other people. He's very independent-minded. He really thinks, you know, his his way is the the right way to do things. So apparently they make an appeal to the Jedi Council, and Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi... Ashoka and a guy named Captain Rex, who's a clone trooper, show up to work as sort of Green Beret advisors, right? They're, we're going to train you, but we're not going to fight your fight. So they help train the Andorian rebels. Andorian rebels. There's a lot of drama and intrigue. Uh, Saw is captured and tortured. And then his sister is ultimately killed in the sort of final battle that reinstate, you know, to, to reinstate the true king and all that kind of stuff. So right from the very beginning, he's a very um, intense character who goes through a lot. He gets trained by Jedi and ultimately loses his sister, which there's a lot of guilt wrapped up in that. So his, the crucible that forms the Saw Gerrera that we, we see now, it was a very hot crucible, and it, it formed him in, in, a, uh, in that way to be a very intense not only political actor, but like uh, a partisan rebel fighter actor, right? You know, he's out there fucking shit up, right? Like for real, you know, and he's got a lot of experience and he he knows how to fight.
2: He is a very interesting character and I hope they do more with him this season.
1: Right. So if you're interested in getting more Saw Gerrera in your life, um, there's a whole bunch of books that he's in. I'm, I'm not going to list any of those. It's, it's too hard. Just Google for Saw Gerrera. Wikipedia has a great article on him. Wikipedia has a great article on him. But the, the short of it is in Clone Wars Season 5, uh, Star Wars Rebels, uh, two episodes in Season 3 and two episodes in Season 4, and uh, I think the first episode of The Bad Batch. All have uh, Saw Gerrera and all Uh, good storylines that really establish him as this very intense uh, partisan fighter who has a no-prisoners attitude uh, uh, about this fight, and um, he does not brook fools lightly.
2: Very cool. All right, thanks, Dennis, for writing in on that. We're about at the end here, but here's some program reminders. We're doing this show every Saturday. It's coming out, Uh, Every Wednesday, you'll get the White Lotus, a full recap, just like we're doing here, uh, along with listener feedback. Uh, We're also doing a new series called Silmarillion Stories, where we read a story from the Silmarillion once a month. The first one's going to come out just before Thanksgiving in the U.S., so at the end of November. Um, And on the Patreon side, we have Second Breakfast, which is our new Patreon benefit, where it's sort of like Lunch with Jim and Aaron, if you're used to Bald Move. Uh, but it's a combination between that and off the clock. So what we're going to do is we're going to take questions of any kind. If you want to ask us life advice, I don't know if you should take it, but we'll take it uh, <laughs> and we'll answer it. If you want to ask us what we're playing in video games or board games or what we're reading, etc., cetera, uh, go ahead and do that. Um, if you want to just write in and say something, that's fine, too. We'll read it on air.
1: I think we'll also probably be talking about the other shows we're watching or books that we're reading. Um, yeah, it'll just be kind of a variety hour.
2: Yeah, you know, we'll, we, whether I talk about a video game and you talk about a board game,
1: uh, games. you know, we
2: talk about, yeah, right. Sorry, I'm sorry. You know what? I've insulted all the role-playing game people already. <laughs> That's it. But we'll talk about TV and movies that we're not covering, music, whatever. So join us on the Patreon if you're already there. Great. Send in your questions in the next few days so that we can get that recorded. Shout out to Samartian for being our first member of the Lore Master tier of our Patreon. And um, lastly, don't forget to write into andor at thelorehounds.com if you want to get your feedback on the next episode. So thanks so much for listening. David, I will see you next week.
1: The Andor podcast is produced by The Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to andor at thelorehounds.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, on your podcast app of choice. To get ad-free versions of this and all other Lorehounds podcasts, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Thanks for listening!